In August 2021, the last US soldiers took off from Kabul airport, ending America's longest war and concluding the two-decade mission in Afghanistan. Kabul fell and after 20 years of fighting, tens of thousands of lives lost and trillions of dollars spent, the Taliban were again in control of the country. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young and we're looking back at 2021. From the ever-given supertanker getting stuck in the sewers, the January 6th storming of the US Capitol building, the Myanmar or Sudanese coups, 2021 was an eventful year. Last week on Beyond the Headlines, we looked at the coronavirus pandemic, what's changed and what may be in store for us next year. We also discussed the strives in space and why billionaires are racing for the stars. If you've not heard last week's show, you can find it in your favorite podcasting app. If you hit the subscribe button while you're there, you'll get all the newest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out. This week, as we wrap up 2021, we're looking into two conflicts that have not only defined the last year, but the last few decades. We're talking about the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, the collapse of the government and the country's future under a resurgent Taliban. We're also talking about May's war in Gaza, the legacy of 11 days of rockets and airstrikes, and whether there's any hope for resolving the Arab-Israel conflict. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. And it was not, it was not a cheap mission. The cost was 2,461 U.S. service members and civilians killed and more than 20,000 who were injured. Sadly, that includes 13 U.S. service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. We honor their sacrifice today as we remember their heroic accomplishments. That was General Kenneth McKenzie the head of CENTCOM and the man who oversaw forces in Afghanistan. In 2021, America ended the war in Afghanistan, a conflict that was sparked by Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda attacks on the World Trade Centers in New York and Pentagon in Washington that killed nearly 3,000 people on September 11, 2001. While US military and intelligence officials have said that they didn't believe that the American withdrawal would cause the total collapse of the internationally backed government, that government fell as President Ashraf Ghani fled Afghanistan on August 15th. The Taliban swept in and took control. The US was hastily exiting, as were other international militaries. Over 100,000 foreign nationals, aid workers, contractors, and Afghans who believed they were at risk of Taliban retribution tried to flee. 2021 was the year that things unraveled in Afghanistan. But Stephanie Glinsky, a reporter with The National who's covered the country from Kabul for several years, said that earlier in the year, it didn't feel like an inevitable end to the democratic Afghanistan. At the beginning of 2021, I was in Afghanistan. The mood was, I mean, completely different compared to what it's like now. I would say there was still a little bit of hope. 
Um, the Taliban had taken grounds, of course, in some of the more rural areas, but at the same time, people were hoping that there would be an agreement between the Afghan government at that time and the Taliban. They were still negotiating a deal, a peace agreement, and a transitional government. So while the Taliban held some areas, the government was still in control, and at the same time, people were hoping, they were hoping for positive news and for maybe a future where every Afghan could could live and thrive and prosper. So what exactly happened? Well, in 2020, under President Donald Trump, the US made a deal with the Taliban to end the war in exchange for America pulling their forces and NATO out of the country. The Taliban still fought with the Afghan government forces, but international casualties dropped off significantly. Now, the deal between the US and the Taliban included the clause that the insurgents would start talks with the government on some form of inter-Afghan dialogue that could establish the direction for a future of the country. But many experts have pointed out that by agreeing to remove the US assistance effectively, the Taliban could watch the clock and wait for their moment to overrun the government. General McKenzie, the head of CENTCOM who you heard from just a moment ago, said that that deal was the root cause of the rapid collapse of the Afghan government and its military. I think we felt there would be grave danger as we drew down our forces to near zero in, in, in August. I don't believe anyone saw how quickly the actual collapse of the military and the government, because let's remember that President Ghani left on the 15th of August in the middle of the day, uh, the collapse of the Afghan government would occur. Those were things that I think we, we anticipated might happen, not quite so quickly. But President Joe Biden has also attributed it to a broader issue. If Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance of the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, the U.S. military boots in the ground would have made any difference. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat because we have significant vital interest in the world that we cannot afford to ignore. But that decision came at a significant cost to thousands of Afghans. Here's Stephanie again. When I arrived in Afghanistan a couple of days after the takeover, dozens of planes were taking off at Kabul airport and thousands of people were leaving. And I was speaking to, to those who were leaving, mothers, children, young people, older people, pretty much anybody. And they had, um, you know, the small bags they were allowed to carry. And most of these conversations ended up with, with people crying. The people I interviewed were crying, I was crying, and it was incredibly, incredibly emotional and also incredibly chaotic. Um, the, um, the U.S. Army was managing the airport, but it was 
a lot of it was completely mismanaged. There was a mother I was speaking to and she said she had managed to get into the airport from the outside, which was another completely chaotic situation. But both of her children hadn't managed to get in. So both of her children were left with the grandmother and they were on the other side and she was crying. This was a scene repeated hundreds of times as thousands of frantic people tried to escape the country. The US and international forces managed to fly nearly 100,000 people out of Afghanistan in a matter of days. But still tens of thousands were left behind. Some started heading for the borders overland. Others sought to lay low and try and find a way out when things settled down. While the Taliban has said publicly that it wouldn't condone retributions or mob justice, there have been dozens of reports of summary executions, of disappearances and killings of Taliban critics, former soldiers, ex-officials and community leaders. So what does this mean now? The Taliban previously ruled Afghanistan before the 2001 invasion, toppled their government in a hail of hellfire missiles and special forces operations, and eventually a mass ground invasion. Under their rule, free speech was non-existent. Any ideas, food, music, culture or ideals seen to be Western or outside the group's strict religious viewpoint were brutally repressed. Women couldn't study work or even really leave the house without a male guardian. In the 20 years since they were removed from power, Afghanistan has changed a huge amount. It wasn't all rosy, war still ravaged the country and poverty was widespread. But there were senior female judges, women MPs, parts of Kabul aligned with trendy cafes and restaurants, international companies signed contracts and undertook development projects, a number of independent locally run media companies that were challenging corruption or poor leadership, emerged. Literacy rates across the board rose from less than 20% in the 1980s to over 40% in 2020. It stands at over 65% for those aged 15 to 24. Many are now scared that those hard-won gains will be just swept aside. After the Taliban returned, women in Kabul quickly returned to wearing full-face coverings to comply with strict religiously motivated edicts. Music in public places was banned, barbershops covered up posters of trendy haircuts, and salons stopped beauty treatments. But the Taliban said it's also changed, that they would now respect the new Afghanistan and promise to take the opinions of the public into account. But simply, few are convinced. I think people were incredibly skeptical. The Taliban had been ruling Afghanistan between 1996 and 2001, and they weren't very reformed during that time. And already previously to the Taliban taking over, they had been ruling some of the districts. And in some of these districts, they had already introduced a more hardline government. So when they said they had changed, a lot of Afghans did not believe that. And as we've very, very quickly seen, the Taliban to this day is not allowing girls um, grade seven and up go go to school. The Taliban has gotten rid of the Ministry of Women's Affairs and has brought back ministries that tell people what to do and how to live and um, police people's behavior. So the skepticism that people had at the same time, is exactly what the Taliban is now living up to. Um, Girls are still not going to school in most areas of Afghanistan. Women have largely been eradicated from from public 
offices and a lot of the women I have been speaking to over the past weeks who previously held jobs in the government or other jobs in um, international organizations are still hiding at home and they are still very, very worried. If they haven't left, they're still trying to leave. So exactly those fears that people had are now coming, coming true. And it's not just Afghans that are skeptical of the Taliban. This is General McKenzie speaking about them since the fall of Kabul. So I've learned a long time ago never to listen to what the Taliban say, instead to look at what they do. And there's no evidence yet that they have done anything to severe ties with al-Qaeda or to suppress ISIS-K to the degree that it needs to be suppressed. They still have some time to do this, and we'll watch very carefully. But I think they probably need to realize that any future recognition or assistance to their government is going to be conditioned on their ability to do those things and also to not roll back the dramatic imp uh, improvements in uh, rights of women, education, and other things that have occurred over the last two decades. Today, Afghanistan is on the brink of famine. Unemployment is shooting up and inflation is peaking. The Taliban remains cut off from the international banking system, and even the likes of the UN said that they will not allow the puritanical group to send someone to represent Afghanistan at the international body. So what does this mean for Afghanistan going into 2022? I don't like using this word, but I do think the situation in Afghanistan is, is hopeless right now for many people. And that's what Afghans would say as well. It's hard to say what will happen in 2022, but if we look at what's been happening so far, there are still billions of dollars frozen. People don't have access to their money. People don't have money to purchase food or even blankets. Afghanistan has very, very harsh, cold winters that usually sees January and February and March very, very cold. So people will need access to heating, to food, to blankets, all of that. Um, and a lot of people don't have that. And what we've also seen is that the Taliban has taken over the government and they've placed ministers and um, they set up this government. But what they are lacking in a lot of the um, areas is expertise, right? A lot of the, the people who are now running the government are mullahs, but they haven't studied the certain area um, that they're now covering, that they're now responsible for, which is a problem. And what we've seen so far is a government that's not working, a government that's not serving it's people. We don't see a functioning healthcare system. People don't have money. People don't have food. And I think the Taliban as well is realizing that taking over a government and running a country is not this easy. And it won't be easy. And a lot of people predict that the Taliban won't be making it. But um, they are in government now and they they will have to manage somehow. They still haven't been internationally recognized, which, of course, makes it even more difficult for them to operate on an international level, to have access to money and funds and um, to international aid as well. So what I think will happen in 2022, definitely we will see Afghans suffering more. More people will die because of the consequences of, of lacking food or health care or even simple things like blankets and access to, to heating systems. What we will definitely see is more suffering and the Taliban trying to set up this government, which still seems very difficult. 2021 was also the year of instability and protest in Israel and Palestinian territories. Palestinian demonstrators were met by Israeli riot police in Jerusalem. Nationalist Israeli demonstrators were met with rocket fire from Gaza. 
the months of tension blew up into an 11-day war in Gaza that left at least 12 civilians dead in Israel and 256 civilians dead in the blockaded Palestinian enclave. Rosie Scammell is the National's Jerusalem correspondent. She explains what happened and what all of this means. So at the start of Ramadan in April, there were protests at Damascus Gate, which is one of the gateways to Jerusalem's old city. The protests were about the closure of the area by the police. So Palestinians who usually celebrate Ramadan there um, and sit on the steps and enjoy the evenings were not allowed to. And these protests grew and grew, and they also worsened when there was a rally from West Jerusalem to this area of East Jerusalem by the Israeli extreme right. And there were also at the same time protests in the nearby neighborhood of Sheikhshara, where lots of Palestinians are facing eviction under the Israeli legal system. And these protests spread also to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. So there was this period in April and early May where there were protests all over East Jerusalem, essentially. And then the war broke out. And even before the Gaza war broke out, the medics' records show that more than a thousand Palestinians were wounded in Jerusalem and a few dozen Israeli police officers. In May, the Gaza war ignited. Hamas, Gaza's hardline leadership, vowed to respond with action against a second nationalist rally in Jerusalem. Then, as the nationalists marched, rocket sirens called out and people ducked for cover and the Israeli military responded with airstrikes. That, in turn, sparked hundreds of Hamas rockets, which were met with dozens more airstrikes, and the conflict spiralled. Rosie was reporting from inside Israel, working closely with Nagham Mahana in Gaza, who was writing for the National throughout the war. During the war, the level of violence that I was seeing from Jerusalem or from the Israeli side of the border was nothing in compared to what happened in Gaza. That's not to say that there was not suffering in Israel. There certainly was. Um, I was reporting on the sites of where people had been killed by rockets. Um, these did include children and elderly people who were in their homes. Um, there was a lot of fear, certainly, but it was also very fearful listening to our colleagues in Gaza reporting when we know that they had no way of staying safe. Hamas fired rockets by the dozen, but thanks to Israel's military Iron Dome system, many of those were shot down, but not all. Rosie reported on the aftermath of those rockets that left civilians, including Israeli Arab Hilal Awad and his 16-year-old daughter Nadine, dead. But it wasn't just Hamas rockets and Israeli strikes. There was also an explosion of intercommunal violence especially within mixed communities. The thing that within Israel that surprised Israelis the most during this period was the intercommunal violence that broke out, which is something that hasn't been seen before, as far as I'm aware. Um, these were attacks by Jews on Arabs and vice versa. Um, and that wasn't just limited to major cities. This was happening all over the place. And... I think that even though that level of violence hasn't happened in recent months, I don't think much has been done really to address that, address the reasons for that intercommunal violence breaking out. I was reporting in a city called Lod, um, which is a mixed city, and it was put 
under a state of emergency during the war because the level of violence had got so extreme there. Certainly when I was there, um, I saw attacks happening. My car was attacked, but thankfully I was able to drive away. So I think that was one of the most shocking things within the Israeli society. In East Jerusalem, the protests continued. And also in the West Bank, there was there were dozens of people killed in the West Bank by Israeli forces during that period. The Gaza War of 2021 is the fourth major round of fighting between the sides since 2005. But it was also distinct and different, says Rosie, due to the role of social media. While Israel has long barred journalists from accessing Gaza during the upticks in fighting, with the advent of smartphones, Palestinians and indeed Israelis are able to document and share their experiences in real time. People no longer have to rely on, he said this, she said that. It's, it's all out there for people to see. And I think what people are seeing around the world is shocking them. So in terms of society, whether that's Israeli society, Palestinian society, American or other, I think there's a lot more awareness. I really saw this in May during the conflict, especially that people around the world who usually have no understanding or interest in what is going on were suddenly switched on and contacting me and asking me what was happening. At the political level, I would say pretty much nothing has changed. We've had more than a decade without any peace talks. There seems no willingness on any side to really find a lasting solution to this conflict. So I think in that sense, it's been a unique year because of the level of protest that we saw and the level of violence, but it will take a lot more than people internationally understanding and knowing what's happening to actually change the situation politically. Although Rosie says that she saw huge engagement and interest and outrage in what was going on, she thinks that it will take a lot to shift the opinions within Israel and the Palestinian territories. I don't really see any change within Israel and the Palestinian territories with regards to relations between one another or understanding the other's position. I think that these are positions that have been created over decades and decades. Um, They're part of the narrative of each side. They're part of the education system. They're part of the social setting. So I think actually it's it would take a lot longer to change beliefs and perceptions within Israel and the Palestinian territories rather than among people abroad. Having said that, Rosie says that 2021 started with a note of optimism. After 15 years, it looked like presidential and parliamentary elections may actually go ahead for Palestinians. Then President Mahmoud Abbas, polling at his lowest popularity in years, indefinitely postponed the vote. Now, the reason given officially was that Israel, which controls East Jerusalem, was not going to allow the elections to be held in a normal way, would not allow Palestinians to go to the polls in those neighbourhoods. There's been a lot of suspicion that the real reason was that Abbas thought that he would lose the elections. And now we're months and months on from that supposed postponement, and we have no idea when Palestinians will be able to vote for their president or for their parliament. So that note of optimism is gone. Palestinians in the West Bank and elsewhere 
are still suffering from economic stagnation, moribund institutions, and little hopes of a breakthrough in solving the decades-long Arab-Israeli crisis. So at the end of 2021, looking ahead to next year and beyond, I see very little prospect for a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the next few years. I think the Israeli policies will continue to be implemented um, in terms of control and settlement expansion. And I don't think that the Palestinian government in Ramallah really has the power to make peace talks happen, even if it had the willingness. And at the moment, there's clearly no willingness from the Israeli prime minister to create a peace deal which would lead to a Palestinian state. That's not on the agenda at all. Just I hope next year will be better than this year. I guess we all feel that way. Thanks this week to Rosie Scammell and to Stephanie Glinsky. We were produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. I'm James Haynes-Young, and thanks for joining us on the last episode of Beyond the Headlines of 2021. From all of us at The National, we wish you a happy new year. And if you're looking for a very achievable New Year's resolution, head to your podcasting app and subscribe to Beyond the Headlines. Get all the latest episodes when we return in 2022.